Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Bay Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Julia Gillard in conversation with Claire Wright, recorded live at the 2015 Byron Bay Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronbaywritersfestival.com.au. Julia, firstly, congratulations on your book. Thank you. It really is a remarkable achievement. I, I read it very eagerly and avidly, not just because I had to talk to you today. <laughs> I actually bought it and read it far before any of this happened. In many ways, it's difficult to do the book justice in the short time we've got because you do range over such broad territory, covering not only the big ticket items of, of how you came to be the leader of the Labor Party and your relationships with so many figures in the Labor Party, including Kevin Rudd, but also your political philosophies and, uh, and your record on an A to Z of public policy issues. So the way that I wanted to get started actually was, given that this is a writer's festival and I know that there are many practising and aspiring writers here, I'd like to talk about your life as a writer rather than as a politician. Authors often say, I didn't choose the story, it chose me. Why did you decide to write this book? <laughs> uh, I definitely think uh, this story chose me. <laughs> uh, I mean, having uh, finished as Prime Minister, there's, you know, some weeks of leave-taking and then there are necessarily some uh, weeks of physical recovery. And for me, there was a period where I kind of lived my life like a fugitive because I didn't want to be... Uh, caught in any public way during the 2013 campaign and so I very much you know stayed at home and didn't you know go out and I started in that period thinking about uh, writing a book about my life as Prime Minister but also looking back on my earlier life to try and explain some of the things that shaped me. So when I emerged from my fugitive period, uh, I then got into some discussions with publishers and was delighted to sign up with Random House and then got to the hard work of writing. And for any aspiring authors in the crowd, for any current authors, I don't have to give this advice, but for any aspiring authors, writing is hard work. Mm. It's hard intellectual labour. Um, it's actually hard physical labour. You end up, you know, kind of uh, hunched over your computer hour after hour. Uh, but overwhelmingly, I enjoyed it as an experience. Mm. By the time you're doing the final round of editing and you've truly lost your mind and you're spending hours debating whether something should be a comma or a semicolon, by then I think I'd gone a bit crazy. Uh, but before that period, I really did enjoy it and enjoyed the process of it. So can you share something of your process with us? Um, can you share, what is the shape of your writing day? Where do you write? Are you a, a night owl or a... A morning lark? Uh, I was a um, start in the morning and write for as long as you could kind of writer. Mm -hmm. uh, the way I approached it was uh, before uh, Christmas 2013, so when Tim and I were still in Melbourne, I planned out the chapter structure of it and uh, that took me, you know, a full three, four weeks. And at the end of it, I felt like a bit of a failure because you'd emerged from three or four weeks with just a few pages about what was going to go in which chapter. But actually, that stood me in good stead. And the, the structure of the book held pretty true to that. And then I wrote about 30,000 words before Christmas, had Christmas to New Year off, and then between uh, New Year and the 14th of February, wrote 145,000 more. And so in order to do that, I wrote every day, uh, started in the morning, uh, wrote until I couldn't write anymore. Sometimes that meant I was writing 10 or 11 hours a day. Uh, Tim had to put up with me, you know, wandering around the house like a mad person, muttering to myself, you know, <laughs> looking moderately dishevelled as I was doing it. Um, but I can't really imagine doing it another way. I can't imagine, you know, writing for three or four hours in the morning and then going and doing something else and then coming back to it the next day. Either I was going to just do it uh, or it wasn't going to get done. Mm. OCD's helpful that way, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, having someone who's prepared to keep the coffees coming also <laughs> helps. Was it difficult to write honestly about people with whom you've worked closely and who are still very much alive today? I, I had to make judgments, you know, um, and it wasn't my intention at any point to uh, harm the Labor Party or the Labor cause in writing this book. 
Um, and so I didn't want it to be, uh, you know, to pe for people to read it and to think worse of Labor or to think that it was full of recriminations or bile. And that's genuinely not how I felt about it. And one of the big motivations for writing it that quickly uh, was I'd become increasingly concerned that uh, there was polling, uh, Mamma Mia and a number of other uh, outlets had polled or talked to young women. And these young women were saying, you know, looking at Julia Gillard's experience in politics makes me less likely to aspire mm. to be a politician. There were all sorts of polls with that kind of question. And I wanted the book to stand for the other proposition, that whatever the problems and rigours of politics, whatever the gendered bits of politics, actually the opportunity to get things done that you really believe in outweighs all of that. Or as I put it in the book, uh, there is this sort of complex uh, flavour of bittersweet about politics, but the sweet is by far the stronger. And so knowing that was what I wanted to say and particularly say to young women who were thinking about politics, this was never going to be, a, you know, line individuals up and try and tear them down kind of book. And, and I must admit there are, there are sections of the book that you write not only with great candour but, but at times cracking humour as well. And so it isn't um, by any means a negative or, or pessimistic book. Um, you know, there's that old aphorism, uh, write drunk, edit sober. Okay. <laughs> uh, we don't have to go there into the process. <laughs> but did you have a guiding principle as to what to include and what to leave out? Oh, I didn't make hard and fast rules. It was more uh, write it, review it, generally sober. Uh, and then work out what, what should stand. Uh, and, you know, I, I knew that, you know, for people who would read this book, they would come at it with a variety of perspectives. Mm. There would be the people who'd grab it and go to the index first to see how they were treated in it. Um, you know, so there's, there's that audience. Uh, but there, I wanted it to speak to a broader audience who didn't necessarily follow, you know, the day-to-day -day things about politics, mm. but had lifted their eyes, looked at my experience and thought, gee, there's something about that I reckon I don't understand or I want to know more about, and for the book to be meaningful to them. And so I knew I couldn't populate it with hundreds and hundreds of political characters and, you know, minute descriptions about what they were like, because many people who picked up the book would be saying to themselves, I don't even know who these people are. Uh, so I, I didn't want it to be like that. Yes, there are some characters who are necessarily on central stage, mm -hmm. uh, but I wanted it to speak more broadly than, you know, a, a kind of um, uh, extended version of a Saturday uh, weekend column uh, for the absolute insiders who wanted to follow what's happened in the last 48 hours. I didn't want it to be that kind of book. And, well, you've definitely succeeded in that. And um, I'm, I've always been extremely interested in the, in the idea of, of voice, and particularly a, a woman's voice. And I was interested to read that Quentin Bryce, who you wrote you've worked very closely with, um, has said that for women, the most important tool we have is our voice. And, and for a writer also, the voice is something that, um, that we concentrate on. I was astounded one day to be having a conversation with Helen Garner when she, was, when she was writing her last book, and she said to me that she was really struggling with it because she couldn't find her voice. Huh. And I thought, how can an author who has written so many books and who we all understand, we hear her voice so readily, how can she not find her voice? So reading your book, I, I actually had the profound sense that you had found your voice, possibly in a way that had not been um, possible for you in parliamentary politics. Uh, can you tell us something about your literary voice and do you think you found it? I think my literary voice is just my voice, and I think it's the same voice that I, uh, you know, spoke in when I was in politics. I actually think the difference is the medium rather than the voice. Uh, and, you know, one of the problems of uh, modern politics, and it's not just us, this is a problem right throughout the democratic world, uh, is, you know, we're increasingly seeing a collision between the 
depth and complexity of the public policy problems that confront us, you know, all the easy stuff someone else has already fixed, you know, what's there to do today is actually really hard. So the, you know, real um, complexity of all of that compared with uh, the sharpness and shallowness of the media cycle. And so when I was Prime Minister, because a lot of the time your voice is mediated to the community through this sharp and shallow media cycle, only little bits get through. Whereas when you've got the luxury of sitting down beyond the immediate combat of politics and writing at length, and at depth about some very big things, including you know, big continuities in your own life, what you can see as the threads of your own life when you take the time to stand back and reflect on it. I, I think that's the difference in, in the tone. It's having that luxury, that real freedom to have nothing between you and the person who is receiving the message. No TV camera in the way, no journalist in the way, no newspaper editor in the way, just direct from me writing to people reading. I've got to say that I, I think in the second edition, the new chapters that you've added, I feel like you've come into your voice even more strongly in those ones. Possibly there's an even greater distance now from the media spotlight that you may have even felt directly after leaving politics. There's a sort of um, there's a there's a strength and a, and a stridency in some of those those chapters. Did you did you feel in coming back to it again that um, you had a different perspective? I think in the new chapter uh, that's in the paperback. Um, it, it was a distillation of a whole lot of things that have been swirling around my head in the period since writing this book, the, the original book, um, and watching Australian politics whilst not commenting on Australian politics. And in the, the new chapter, I don't comment on Australian politics and I don't believe it's my role any longer to say, you know, Tony Abbott did this today or Malcolm Turnbull did that today or, you know, Bill Shorten or Tanya or whoever. You know, the people who are in politics now need to, you know, have those discussions, those debates, those clashes and ultimately people will make their decision in 2016 and there's no doubt who I'll be barracking and campaigning for, but um, the, the, those political conversations need to be had by the current generation. I wanted in the chapter to take a step back from the immediacy of day-to-day -day politics and look at this, the underlying trends in our politics and democratic politics generally. And so I think there's a sharpness to that chapter because I find so much of what the whole world is going through to be very frustrating, mm. our inability to get our democratic rhythms right so that we can really address profound reform challenges. And I think there's a sharpness to that chapter that possibly isn't in the rest of the book uh, because the book was more, you know, a, a retrospective, whereas that is kind of a, you know, pithy observation about now. Mm. Well, let's talk about the political process a bit now. Um, another one of my pet topics is uh, the first wave feminist campaigners of the late 19th century and early 20th century, like, like Vida Goldstein, who argued that if women had access to political power, they would change the world because women were inherently peacemakers, blessed with superior negotiating skills. That was... <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, the argument that they took was that, after all, that's what women did in their roles as mothers every day. They taught their children to play nicely with each other, um, something our politicians could definitely learn from. <laughs> um, but one of the most compelling things I found in your book was learning just how much you were able to achieve in minority government. And, and I guess one of the things you were able to do, as you say, a, um, apart from the media cycle and how far it is to cut through, you were actually able to lay out all of the, their achievements. Um, your government managed to pass 566 pieces of legislation. Um, that is... Yeah. No, no wonder The Guardian newspaper has called you the most productive Prime Minister in Australian history. Um, there's actually a leaders board, um, if you want to go and look at it, and empirically you top the leaders board on legislative output. Mm -hmm. So. 
I, I don't know if that comes with a medal. I haven't received it yet. <laughs> Might be in the post. Without wanting to be essentialist about this, do you think that being a woman helped you in dealing with the crossbench while in minority government? Um, as we can see with the, the present Prime Minister, it's not an easy thing to achieve. Um, why were you so bloody good at it? <laughs> um, well, let me, let me first go through the sort of feminist um, uh, perspective here and then talk about my own experiences. I'm actually of a different school mm -hmm. to the great Vida. I'm sorry about that. Um, when I was first involved in the advocacy campaigns to get more Labor women into Parliament, there was a debate within the Labor women who were all pushing for that. And certainly some women believed that if we got more women into Parliament, then Parliament would be a kinder, gentler kind of place. I never believed that. Um, I, and, and I don't think we should actually aspire for that. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean we should uh, you know, relish sort of hyper-partisanship and sort of puffed up debates about nothing. But at the end of the day, Parliament is the place where we have the biggest values clashes in our democracy and we sort things out. And you should expect that people will go into that place and have a red-hot go for the things that they believe in and the things that people have elected them to do. Uh, and I wanted, more than anything else in my political career, to prove that a woman can stand in that very adversarial place and dominate it and make it her own, uh, rather than suggest we're all going to kind of, you know, forget about the divisions if there are more women there. We're not. Uh, so I, I come from a different place about women's equality in Parliament. I don't think it's about making the process more gentle. I think it's about making the process more meritorious mm. in the sense that if you believe, as I do, that merit is equally distributed between the sexes and you look at a parliament or a cabinet and you see overwhelmingly men, then mathematically that must mean women of merit who should have got there didn't get there and you haven't got your best team doing it. Well, in this complex, quarrelsome age, why would we settle for that? Mm. And so when it came to negotiating, I don't think that's inherently the skill of one gender. I think it's about individuals, their capacities and the circumstances. Um, I needed to negotiate. In truth, every Prime Minister other than John Howard in that brief period that gave us work choices, every Prime Minister in the modern age has needed to negotiate. They've always had Senates that they had to work with to get things through. And people have shown themselves better or worse at that. And the people being negotiated with have shown themselves to be better or worse at that. I needed to do those negotiations earlier for the House of Representatives. Um, you know, I think I brought some personal attributes to that, an ability to listen to people and to try and see the world through their eyes. But I also had, you know, fantastic people to work with. And I would certainly say of Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott that I were, was dealing with people who put the national interest first, you know. Um, <laughs> And if you've got, you've got a negotiating partner who's prepared to do that, even if you start with slightly different perspectives about what the national interest means in any given context, you can find your way through. Mm. So talking about the, those different personalities, Canadian historian Margaret Macmillan has written of Margaret Thatcher, a very different personality, that, quote, she had little time for the politics of inclusion or compromise that Thatcher considered herself a conviction politician, not a consensus one. So conviction or consensus? It, it depends on uh, the issue and the age. I mean, we, even looking back to Margaret Thatcher's time, which, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't seem, you know, huge, I'm also very uh, young when Margaret Thatcher was around, but it's at least within the ambit of my lifetime. Um, there's probably some people who are in the audience going, who, who are we talking about, <laughs> Margaret, who? Um, uh, I, I think there's some things about the age in which we live that have changed. I mean, people today 
are less susceptible to command and control styles of leadership than they were in the past. Um, you know, e everything about our relationship with authority has changed. Um, you know, I remember, you know, growing up, if my father needed to go and see the bank manager, I mean, he'd put a suit on, mm. and that would be, you know, a very unusual thing for Dad to wear a suit, but he'd get a suit on, and it would be an anxiety-causing, you know, engagement where you'd make an appointment and see some stern, inevitably in those ages, man uh, who would lord it over you and work out whether or not you were worthy of some credit to buy a house or whatever it was you wanted to do. I mean, no one would tolerate engaging with a bank like that now if you can't, you know, um, uh, you, you don't get service that you want from one, you go to another, you know, people want to engage differently, we don't have that command and control, be afraid of the school principal, be afraid of the local um, council member, be afraid of the bank manager, be afraid of the doctor, that's not who we are now. Uh, and so someone who comes into this more um, distributed age where everybody's got to say, everybody's got an opinion and through social media, everybody's got the ability to make their opinion known instantaneously. If you came into that and said, you know, I'm all about command and control and I don't care what any of you think, I don't think you'd prosper in modern politics. So there's things that have changed about democratic structures. Um, and then conviction versus consensus. I, I think you can be very firm in your convictions. Sometimes that means you have to crash through against opposition. Sometimes that means you'll look to maximise the number of people you take with you. Depends on the environment, depends on the obstacles. There were some things that as Prime Minister I crashed through on. Uh, there were some things I was very anxious to maximise the number of people who were behind a cause. Hmm. So that leads me, with what you just said then, to skip across a couple of questions and say politics is undeniably a rough trade, as you've just suggested. And um, you have said in your book that hard things happen, but you're still responsible for the choices that you make. So are there choices that you would make differently, issues that you'd crash through or ones that you'd pull back from, different people you'd take with you? What, what do you consider your most profound mistake? I, th I think there. Well, thank you for that question. Um, uh, in in the book, I think I'm pretty frank about some individual political errors. I mean, certainly the way we handled carbon pricing, the way I handled carbon pricing, uh, not you know having the debate about whether or not. Uh, putting a price on carbon and creating an emissions trading scheme should be called a tax. That was a dreadful uh, tactical error, uh, which um, you know created an ongoing political nightmare for me and for the government. So there are things like that that I would point to, but more generally than that, looking looking back on my time in politics, uh, one of the things that I regret. Uh, is I think I was very clear about my purpose and why I was there. I actually went so far as to write down my sense of purpose as Prime Minister and to carry it around with me. And I thought when I was in the job, I was pretty good at pushing back the day-to-day -day demands of, you know, meetings and, you know, texts and tweets and emails and all the rest of it and trying to find some quiet and strategic time to think about issues. Looking back on it now, though, I didn't do anywhere near enough of that. Mm. And I think that that is a prevailing vice of our age. Um, you know, there's always been a contest uh, between the urgent and the important. People would have felt that throughout human history. But this is the age that privileges the urgent over the important so much. It's always with you, keeping you up at 11 o'clock at night. You know, even if you wake up in the middle of the night, half the room probably knows what it's like to check your messages at 2am because you've got a bit restless. I mean, we're always focused on the urgent and one of the big things we're all doing, and I wish I'd carved out more time when I was PM to you know, think strategically about the important, the stuff that'll matter in 10, 15, 20 years. Now, that doesn't mean we didn't do any of it and we didn't set some long-term strategies we did. Um, you know, our white paper, Australia in the Asian Century, I think will have relevance in 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, but, you know, if I had my time again, I'd certainly reweight the daily balance towards more thinking time. Mm.
there's, it, it's interesting because in, in the history profession at the moment there is a, a, a critique of what's being called short-termism and, uh, and the call for a return to the long durée version of history where we get some perspective. So clearly in politics too, too. that applies. Um, I was very taken by this sentence in your fine chapter on resilience. You said, because I was never motivated by the applause, which clearly you've gotten a lot of today, nice. but because I was never motivated by the applause, it hurt me less when I was not receiving it. Can you tell us about how your relationship to the very public nature of being, the, the public nature of the job of being Prime Minister, how did you cope with that publicity, particularly if you don't really enjoy the limelight? Mm. There is a curious fusion uh, today of politics and celebrity, and we can, you know, it's easy to see all of the things that have taken us there, uh, but being in politics today is very different from even 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, we're actually seeing that fusion of politics and celebrity uh, play out very much in the US presidential um, debates. You know, uh, Donald Trump is where you get to when you've got the full fusion of uh, uh, celebrity and politics. Um, bit of a worry. Um, so, you know, there, there's more of a celebrity side to it. And I think assessing politics today, there would be people who are quite interested in that celebrity mm. side of it, that one of their motivations when they're thinking about politics is that celebrity side of it. Um, that was never my motivation. I mean, I wasn't naive, I wasn't silly. I knew that if you were going to be uh, at the top of politics, then inevitably you would be out in the public domain, you'd be giving speeches, you'd be in the media, there would be a lot of inquiry about your personal life, but I didn't go looking for that. And, you know, in my early days in politics, I used to sort of half joke with people if there was a, another way of doing this without ever, uh, you know, becoming a known figure, having the benefit of your anonymity, uh, I would have chosen that path. But of course, that path's not open to you. Um, and so for me, it was always about the ideas, the policies, the prosecution of ideas, and being out and about as necessary to do that. Um, rather than just putting yourself in those situations because you wanted to hear the applause of the crowd. And if you're in politics to hear the applause, it's a pretty short-term uh, reward set. Um, I'm very uh, taken by a phrase that Tony Blair uses when he speaks publicly. He uses the phrase, if you decide, you divide. You know, if you're in politics, you make a big decision, truly big decisions are often very controversial, and quite quickly half the crowd, at least half, maybe more than half, aren't applauding anymore, they're booing. Uh, and so, you know, if you were looking for the cheap applause, then that couldn't be the sustaining motivation for you. So for me, it was really all about public policy and purpose. And when people ask me now, what do you miss about politics? You know, what I miss dreadfully is having that public policy capacity. I mean, you'll have, you'll, I'll never, you know, no one could ever in our nation have more levers in their hands to make change than you do as Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. So I miss that. Mm -hmm. um, do I miss the audacious media scrutiny? No. Do I miss the television cameras, you know, sort of after every move, uh, the, you know, uh, invites uh, to go and do various TV shows? I don't miss that because that wasn't for me that was a means to an end, it wasn't an end in itself. And some of the most funny passages in your book when, uh, when you're talking about the extra burden placed on women uh, in politics within that celebrity culture because of the, the emphasis that's put on appearance. And uh, you've got some very funny passages um, about bad hair days and, and uh, having to get out, having to um, have your briefings while having your makeup put on and, and, and pressures and stresses that just aren't on men. Um, I'm turning that around into a question, as a statement. <laughs> Afterwards, I'm going to ask you to make questions, not statements. Um, Probably the moment that you got the most applause, I would say, uh, in your prime ministership, was the misogyny speech. Mm -hmm.
in your book you canvass that in uh, a chapter called The Curious Question of Gender. And, and some, as, as I say, might consider that the defining moment of your prime ministership, whether that's what you want to be remembered for or not. It certainly raised your international profile. You had millions of hits for that speech. And, and I know many mothers, myself included, who sat down with their daughters and made them watch that speech and cried together. It was a very bonding moment. Did you have any idea that that speech would touch such a chord? No. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I didn't. I mean, it was a speech given in a particular political context, um, a uh, debate about a speaker, heavens above, you know. <laughs> um, imagine that. Um, so I, you know, it, it was in that political context. I hadn't known I was going to give the speech until I gave the speech. What I uh, went into Parliament prepared for was question time and I thought question time would be about sexism and it would be about Peter Slipper the speaker and it would be you know ten questions to me about you know aren't I a hypocrite on sexism because I'm supporting the speaker you know ten questions with slight variations but all on that theme so I'd, I'd gone into the Parliament ready for that which meant that I'd asked my staff to put together Tony Abbott's kind of top ten sexist quotes. Um, which, Only ten. Yeah, um, which they had done very quickly, and um, <laughs> given given the research demands that can be placed on a prime minister's office, that wasn't you know they did, weren't even breaking a sweat like that was an easy <laughs> job. Um, so I was carrying that with me into the parliament, and I did. I did have this, um, I won't use the words, but I did have swear words forming in my mind during the course of the morning as I was getting ready for question time. Just, you know, incensed that after everything I'd put up with, now apparently I was going to get a lecture on sexism. So I had this sort of growing kind of cool anger about it all, not a hot anger. Uh, and when I got into the parliament, Tony Abbott moved a motion, and so he spoke, and then I needed to immediately respond, and that became uh, the misogyny speech. Um, and when I finished it, because at no point did I feel hot angry, I felt cool angry, I, I knew it was a forceful speech, because you're actually physically quite close to the other side in Parliament, so you can read the body language, and, and, and it shows, you know, very much when people have watched the footage that they've gone from sort of heads up yelling at me to dropping their heads to looking at their phones to, you know, clearly wishing they were somewhere else, and Tony, Tony Abbott famously Thank looked at his watch and all the rest of it. So I. I knew, I knew it had landed powerfully, but I didn't have any sense beyond the chamber. And so I actually uh, just swung round to Wayne, who you know, would sit behind me, and I was, you know, oh, now I'm gonna have to sit here and listen to them speak to this motion. I'll be bored, I haven't got anything to do. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get the staff to run some correspondence in, so I've got something to do while I have to listen to them. Um, and when Wayne's sort of looking at me quite, oddly and said, yeah, you can't give the IAQ speech and kind of settle down and do your correspondence. <laughs> Jeez, that's odd. Um, so I just swung my chair back to the front and then lo and behold, I've got Anthony Albanese come, came and took the seat next to me. You know, Albo, I love fighting Tories, Labor's ha hard man. And the first thing out of Albo's mouth was, God, I felt sorry for Abbott when he looked at his watch. <laughs> It's gone mad like this is. Um, but I thought this madness had only infected my Labor colleagues. I didn't. I didn't think it was broader than that. So I walked back to the office, and even you know, in the time I'd spent in the chamber and the walk back to the office, the whole thing, you know, it was exploding. People were ringing in and sending emails in. It was obvious it was going to have this huge impact. And I knew as the days went by how big the global impact was, you know, that it was getting reported around the world and, and you know, YouTube and everything. But the, the moment that it really came home to me is I went to India uh, as Prime Minister and when you go, you've got some Australian security who come with you and then they liaise with a local security team provided by the host government. So there's an Indian security team. So there was an Indian uh, policewoman 
who got in the car when I came off the plane because she was part of the protection detail. So she had, you know, the thing in her earpiece in her ear and all the rest of it. And the first thing she said was she turned round and said to me, great speech. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought, yeah, this really is out there now, isn't it? <laughs> yep. For my money, you really hit the nail on the head in discussing that shocking Ditch the Witch rally. If we can um, stick with the topic for a moment. Um, you really hit the nail when you discussed that on the killing season recently. You said, I really don't know why this wasn't a career-ending moment for Tony Abbott. Sexism is no better than racism. <laughs> Why do you think it, why is it still possible to get away with such sexual vilification, even at the highest levels of public office? I'd like to think it's less easy now, uh, that we're more sensitised to it. And in some ways, I mean, when, when I said that and when I wrote it in the book, um, you know, my, my mind was going to what would happen uh, if we had the first Indigenous Prime Minister of our country and the leader of the opposition stood in front of a sign that said, you know, sack the... and I'm sure you can all imagine a series of words that are used to vilify Indigenous Australians and one of those horrible words coming next, that that would be a career-ending moment. And I still think it would be a career-ending moment, but I've been a little bit taken aback uh, by some of the circumstances involving legendary footballer Adam Goods. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I hope that we're continuing on a journey of getting better and better uh, about race and the treatment of Indigenous Australians, but signs in recent weeks have been truly troubling. Um, for sexism and politics, uh, I think... Yes, it's still there. We will see it play out around Hillary Clinton in the US. It's not just us. But I hope for Australia, and this is the conclusion that I come to in my book, uh, that having lived through it once and having seen where it got us all to, uh, that next time round when there's a woman, there will be a, you know, remembering that will stop people getting themselves to quite that point. And I think even though they would never say it, there are some people in politics and some people in the media who look back on that time now and how they conducted themselves and have mentally said to themselves, I'm not gonna do that again. Uh, so I think that there's been some learning that we will take with us. So there's still a lot to do, but I'm an optimist. I think we're on a path forward about gender and politics. Now, you've mentioned Hillary Clinton. Let's move away from the fishbowl of Australian politics now. Uh, in your time as, as Prime Minister and, and indeed in your ongoing work on the global stage, you've met and worked with many world leaders, um, Obama, Merkel, Cameron Key, Xi Jinping, Berlusconi for your sins. Um, <laughs> what do you identify as the qualities that define effective and inspiring leaders? I think worked with Berlusconi is possibly putting it a little <laughs> bit too highly. <laughs> feel, feel a need to clarify that. Um, uh, sat next to him at a G20 and, um, uh, you know, observed that he was wearing far more makeup than I was, which was an uh, interesting sort of observation. And then, then wondered why I was seated next to him, because normally, apart from having the US and China next to the host, the whole thing's organised alphabetically. So how I ended up next to Mr Berlusconi, Italy, Australia, anybody's guess? You might have put in a request. Uh, no. Uh, well, I didn't. Uh, um, and I don't, uh, I don't think that I was in Mr Berlusconi's age range. Um, so I think, think it's very unlikely he did. Um, uh, but I, I did get to work with, um, you know, and continue uh, to work with some remarkable people. I mean, clearly I'm a Hillary fan and uh, wish her uh, all luck and good fortune as she contests in the US. 
Uh, I still uh, get to do some work with uh, President Obama and particularly Michelle Obama who is taking a fantastic interest in girls' education and will be, I'm sure, a huge global champion for girls uh, in this White House but beyond uh, the time of uh, President Obama's administration. Um, I you know, got to work with some remarkable women, with Chancellor Merkel, with uh, Christine Lagarde from the IMF. So there's plenty of good people uh, out there on the world stage. And it was you know, refreshing to see that in those kind of encounters, when it ends up being, you know, with all the foreign policy apparatus that was ultimately en ends up being two people or a bunch of people in a moment trying to solve a problem, uh, that actually a lot of people come with great goodwill and intellectual reserves to that problem solving. Hmm. And, and so did, what do you feel like you learnt from those world leaders and, and what did they learn from you? There's a great photo in the book of you doing a hand pass of, a, of Australian <laughs> rules football with Obama. So maybe you taught him something about AFL, but you probably taught him some other things too. Uh, taught him something about uh, AFL, though uh, given his natural athleticism, I don't think I'd be challenging him for too long. I think he will surpass me very quickly. Um, I, I think with President Obama, one of the things that was um, great for me, and I hope uh, good for him too, was we were able to talk you know, as political progressives, as people from a social democratic tradition, as people who were unusual leaders of our nation, um, our nations, the, you know, the first um, to do these things about the particular stresses and strains that brought, but also the remarkable opportunities for change that that brought in your nation. So uh, we were able to have some of those very intense conversations. Um, from the others, I mean, one of the things that I always found at those meetings was the women would gravitate to each other mm. and very quickly the conversation would become the sort of conversation um, I've had with so many women around the country about the, you know, issues there still are for women and leadership, the differential uh, scrutiny of appearance, the uh, looking at and criticism of family structures, you know, if you don't have kids, why don't you? How can you understand family life? If you do have kids, well, hell, who's looking after them? Um, you know, uh, all, all of that playing out in very different nations around the world. Earlier this year, um, I will turn to, to your life after politics now, because in the time that we've got remaining to us, um, earlier this year, you wrote a very moving tribute on the death of the remarkable Joan Kerner. Um, in it, you said, after her time as Premier, Joan could have chosen a quieter and easier life, but that simply would not have been Joan. I suspect that's not Julia either. <laughs> so tell us about your life after parliamentary politics. What are you, what are you putting your formidable energies into now? Uh, it certainly wasn't Joan, and gee, she got so much done for Labor women, particularly in her time post-politics. Uh, for me, it is, you know, focusing on education, and as I uh, say in the book, and one of the, you know, things about coming out of politics and reflecting on your life's journey, you see the threads that bind it together ever more clearly, and one of those threads for me was always about education and opportunity. It was the message of my family home. It was what first got me involved in politics. It was what drove me through uh, some difficult days when I was Prime Minister. And so in the time post-politics, I wanted to take that passion for education into a new realm. And so I was delighted to uh, get the opportunity to chair the Global Partnership for Education, uh, which is the big multilateral funder of school education in developing countries. So just like there's the Global Fund that does vaccines and there's the Global Fund that combats AIDS, TB and malaria, uh, GPE is the big global fund for education. So we work in 60 developing countries. Uh, we do a lot of good work, but I am seized by the need to do so much more. Uh, on current rates of change, we won't see the first generation of sub-Saharan African girls who universally get to go to primary school and lower secondary mm. until 2000. 111. Um, 
So uh, even the youngest uh, members of the audience here today are going to uh, struggle uh, to make it to see that happen. Uh, so, you know, business as usual uh, isn't anywhere near good enough. We've got to bend that curve and make sure that we are educating boys and girls right around the planet uh, far more quickly than the natural rate of change is going to give us. So that's our mission at GPE. And I get to do that, the practical stuff, in 60 countries around the world. And then through Brookings, I get to do some of the high-level thinking stuff because they've got assembled there just this remarkable team of powerfully intelligent people, scarily intelligent people, uh, who are trying to crack uh, the policy problems that we need to solve if we're going to make a difference to that roundabout 100-year time frame. Mm. I think that deserves it, definitely deserves it now. Now, as we suggested before, there's um, quite a cultural critique these days of the phenomenon of short-termism, and, um, and we've talked about the 24-hour news cycle. And you and other sociologists blame digital technologies and, and social media. If we cut across that short-termism, what you're doing now, what you've done in the past. Let's jump ahead to the year 2165, right. so 150 years from now. Okay, I'll be quite old then. For the, <laughs> for the mathematically challenged amongst us. What are the historians writing about you and your government? What do you hope you're remembered for? Oh, um. <laughs> I haven't really thought about the 150-year time horizon. Now, now I'm feeling dreadfully short-term. I feel chastised. Um, I, I, I don't think we are a country, maybe it's something about being young, uh, that uh, I think we carry with us the lessons of our history, but I don't think we're forensic studiers of history. Uh, certainly, I always had an aspiration for uh, kids to, you know, study history at school and to perhaps know more about our nation than they do. Um, but, I'd, look, I, I wouldn't be deluded enough uh, to think that people will be burrowing through uh, textbooks or academic works trying to study up my government. Um, I think I'll probably be remembered for being the first woman. Uh, I hope I'm remembered for uh, being the architect of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which will still be in operation. Um, I hope I'm remembered for putting a big spotlight on education, which has continued over those 150 years. Uh, and I hope, too, that our nation is a very different place for children in the sense that they're safer uh, because our nation has learned so much from the Royal Commission into child sexual abuse. But I also hope that there have been so many women to have served as Prime Minister by then that uh, really uh, this whole issue of, you know, gender and politics is long gone. I, I joke with people that, you know, I'll be going to ALP quiz nights in my 80s. I hope hope to live that long, and knowing my political party will still be having quiz nights, even, even if no one else is. Um, and uh, I hope when I'm at one of those quiz nights in my 80s, raising a little bit of money for a Labor campaign, uh, that there is a question about, you know, how many women prime ministers have there been, and no one gets the answer right, because there have been so many uh, that no one bothers counting anymore, and that'll be a good age. Okay, last question before I turn it over to you guys. And I said at the beginning that um, if we had a chance, we'd get back to Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, it, it might surprise some people in the audience to know that you've recently turned up as a television critic in The Guardian, uh, writing about Game of Thrones. And in it, you talk about the action being set in a world that does not permit women to be knights, and the plotters, the plotted against, and the vast majority who are both. And you also said, one thing Game of Thrones has taught us is to guard against too much emotional investment. Part of its genius is, a, is an ability to shatter your dream for outcomes and keep you begging for more at the same time. Any chance that your time in federal parliament has given you some insight into television? <laughs> 
Uh, maybe it has, and uh, I've joked that a few dragons would have come in handy from time to time, though uh, where you would have kept them and what you would have fed them on day by day is a bit of a mystery to me. Um, I, I think I need to explain the Game of Thrones stuff just a little bit. My uh, father was incredibly interested in politics and followed every moment of my prime ministership, sort of minute by minute. Um, the rest of my family, less interested. Uh, so uh, they've, you know, followed my time in politics broadly because they care about me, but not particularly interested in politics. And so to this day, if you had my family members here, my sister, my niece, my nephew, their partners, and said, what's the most impressive thing Julia's ever done? Uh, my nephew, Tom, would say, beyond doubt, it was meeting Arnold Schwarzenegger. He thought, <laughs> he thought that was amazing. Uh, and they would probably say the fact she gets three episodes of Game of Thrones early and we get to watch them with her as she writes her reviews is amongst her highest achievement. Um, so that's uh, one of the reasons I write for The Guardian on Game of Thrones. The whole family loves it and they feed into the reviews. Uh, but uh, politics, uh, like great television, like great books, um, at the end of the day are about uh, human uh, strengths and human frailties. Uh, in Game of Thrones, that's a matter of life and death. Uh, in politics, uh, maybe it's more a matter of the occasional bruising than life and death, though it feels like life and death at the time. Uh, certainly, Paul Keating's consoling words to me as I packed up my office as Prime Minister, he rang to say, we all get taken out in a box, love. Um, yeah. thanks, thanks, Paul. I feel 100% better now. Uh, magic, ta. Um, but, but, you know, the, the great thing about politics is, uh, unlike Game of Thrones, you get to come back in the next episode and create the next chapter of your life. All right. We've actually run out of time for questions and I know because I know there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, play on Julia's time at the signing table. Um, I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that your exit from federal politics shattered many Dream 4 outcomes and uh, has us begging for more women of such intelligence and empathy at the highest levels of public office. Thank you for being with us today, Julia. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Bay Writers Festival 2015. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from Byron Bay Writers Festival on our website, byronbaywritersfestival.com.au and our iTunes.